0: Previously on Flying the Line, we examined the internal challenges of the J.J. O'Donnell administration and the increasing issue of skyjacking. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including Flight Finder, located in the ALPA app. Flight Finder is the most comprehensive resource for Jumpseat today, providing real-time access and availability for your commute to or from work. Download the app at alphaorg apps or in your smart device's app store. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 3. The Trials of J.J. O'Donnell, Part 2. Suspension of Service in Theory and Practice Because the SOS tactic bore some resemblance to a traditional strike, it had obvious and immediate legal problems. American labor law, and particularly the Railway Labor Act of 1926, was designed precisely to prevent such wildcat actions. Any resort to the SOS tactic would need a careful and innovative legal approach one that could be fully supported in both constitutional and statute law. Alpa General Counsel Henry Weiss would eventually craft a defensible constitutional rationale for an SOS in 1981. By refusing to fly during a 24-hour shutdown, which was not a strike against their employers, airline pilots would, in effect, be petitioning Congress and other governments around the world for relief from skyjacking. The Supreme Court would later recognize the validity of this argument when it upheld flag-burning as symbolic speech and constitutionally protected. But all that was in the future. In 1972, Weiss faced an immediate problem of justifying the skyjacking SOS in statute law. From his extensive experience in labor law, Weiss adapted the closest parallel cases he could find to serve ALPA's purpose. These included a case from the 1950s when the Longshoremen's Union refused to load ships with grain for Russia, on the grounds that they were protesting not against their employers, but against government policy. That case was resolved by a Supreme Court decision that upheld the action and gave the legal foundation to the skyjacking SOS. Regardless of its legal validity, The SOS idea spooked average line pilots. It could get them fired. And it ran counter to every tenet of their personal code. Airline pilots are not people who defy authority. Their whole ethos revolves around the concept of order, duty, and steadiness of purpose. To ask people bred in this environment to act like aerial protesters was dangerous. O'Donnell concluded that the SOS concept, which he maintained was a bad idea, resulted from the apathy of ALPA's general membership and the activism of a militant few. Since the subsequent history of the SOS movement supported O'Donnell's thesis, why did he agree to it? The UN had failed to take action on calls to boycott nations giving asylum to skyjackers. This outraged the international pilot community. The crazies won support for an SOS action, according to O'Donnell's view. But regardless of his personal views, O'Donnell would lead the charge for a worldwide shutdown, a global suspension of service. On June 6, 1972, a special emergency meeting of the executive board approved the SOS. They set a date of June 19th for action if the U.N. had not responded by then. Two days later, IFALPA approved a coordinated SOS action. While O'Donnell opposed the SOS privately, his public activities gave no hint of it. During a nationwide live telecast of Face the Nation, O'Donnell appeared committed, militant, and willing to defy a court injunction which the Air Transport Association had obtained on June 17th, It seemed, on first reading, to bar Alpa from the action. O'Donnell appeared at the time to be willing to defy the courts and risk going to jail. His remarks induced a near state of panic in Bruce Simon, Henry Weiss's law partner, who monitored the telecast in the studio. Simon assumed it was being taped, He told O'Donnell they had to get the broadcast stopped or changed, but it was a live program. Aware of the grave consequences of announcing that he would defy a court injunction, Simon hustled O'Donnell out of the studio's back door immediately and into hiding to avoid the possibility of going to jail. The outcome of the 1972 SOS was at best disappointing, despite some isolated successes. Eastern which had lost one of its own, First Officer Chuck Hartley, to a Skyjacker's bullet, shut down completely. Likewise, the pilots of Northeast Airlines, who would later merge with Delta, managed a good shutdown. Faced with court injunctions against the SOS, other ALPA groups only sporadically complied. United's Bill Davis, who was an ALPA national officer, walked off a loaded B-747 just before pushback. A few other brave individuals did likewise. Eastern's pilots came away from the 1972 SOS affair aggrieved at the lack of support from other ALPA pilot groups. They resolved to vent their anger and frustration in the future, a dangerous matter for ALPA's internal unity. But the Eastern pilots were operating without the threat of punishment. Eastern's CEO, Frank Borman, had approved their participation in the SOS and was willing to shut down his airline. TWA wavered in its support for the SOS. Other pilot groups looking for leadership also began weakening. The MEC chairs of Braniff, Northwest, Pan American, Seaboard World, and Western Airlines all called TWA MEC chair John Gratz. They informed him that if the TWA pilots, who were most clearly associated with the action, did not honor it, neither would they. Gratz, with his own MEC crumbling, tried to tough it out. He bullied and begged his MEC, appearing outwardly confident of success. It was all to no avail. Gratz's gamble fell apart during a disastrous teleconference among his 18 MEC members just preceding the SOS. Not only did Gratz's MEC pull out of the SOS, they recalled him as MEC chair. With the collapse of TWA, other MEC chairs at other airlines also folded. O'Donnell was not a slow learner. By the time the aborted SOS, titled Operation USA rolled around, he was older, wiser, and much cagier. In one sense, O'Donnell would handle Operation USA brilliantly. He never intended that Operation USA should ever actually take place. O'Donnell would use it as a ploy to extort concessions from the new Reagan administration. The only problem with O'Donnell's strategy was Was that its internal ALPA political effect was not what he expected. Operation USA was an exercise in external and internal politics. Later, O'Donnell admitted that it was a grab bag approach to settling issues and long standing grievances ALPA had with the way the FAA enforced certain rules. Thus, Operation USA was a purely tactical ploy. O'Donnell hired consultants expanded communications, and generally succeeded in getting everyone in the loop by holding pep rally-type meetings at crew bases around the country. All this was necessary to convince the incoming Reagan administration that ALPA was serious. The nation's airlines really were going to shut down. O'Donnell's problem was that to convince the Reagan people of ALPA's seriousness, he first had to convince rank-and-file members. In November 1980, shortly after the election of Ronald Reagan, the Board of Directors once again authorized the executive board to call an SOS if the incoming Republican administration did not respond to Alpa's concerns. The timing was deliberate. O'Donnell, who had contacts with high-ranking members of Reagan's campaign staff, knew that his best chance of influencing the new Secretary of Transportation Drew Lewis, was during the first weeks of his term. Despite repeated campaigning against the Carter administration's policies, Alpa had not secured any relief. The object of this pressure was to secure a presidential emergency board to adjudicate the most divisive of the several issues, crew complement. Even a highly publicized day-long picketing event at the White House in October 1980 just before the election, had not worked. But O'Donnell was almost certain that the incoming Republicans would accommodate ALPA. During the campaign, O'Donnell worked quietly for Reagan, one of the few labor union presidents to do so. The Reagan people were glad to have O'Donnell's support. In return, the Reagan administration would be speedy on ALPA's request for a presidential emergency board the board would decide, once and for all, the crew complement issue. So O'Donnell knew, long before the BOD meeting in November 1980, that he would not have to implement an SOS. On February 11, 1980, ALPA's executive board canceled the SOS at O'Donnell's urging. Two weeks later, living up to the bargain made with O'Donnell, Ronald Reagan announced the appointment of a presidential emergency board. When the board met in early 1981, ALPA got its day in court. But, put simply, the board that Reagan appointed would hand ALPA its head on a platter. On every issue, particularly the third crew member concept, the presidential emergency board ruled against ALPA's position. The only positive aspect of the Reagan board was that it finally ended the long internal wrangle over crew complement. The third crew member, with whatever safety edge that extra set of eyes provided, would fade away as technology improved productivity on the flight deck. The long battle was lost, but at least it would no longer trouble ALPA internally. For J.J. O'Donnell, political problems compounded by the devastating impact of airline deregulation, were multiplying. He could point to the window-dressing successes of Operation USA, a voice and aircraft certification, new channels of communication with the FAA, and the quashing of that agency's attempt to use the cockpit voice recorder as an enforcement tool. But as the presidential election year of 1982 dawned, these benefits seemed trivial and dissatisfaction with O'Donnell spread. He had been in office long enough for a backlog of separate grievances to build up against him. The Northwest pilots, for example, felt that O'Donnell had not properly supported their 105-day strike in 1978. When pressed for details, they generally admitted that most of their complaints were based on emotion. Grievances emanating from other pilot groups nagged at O'Donnell many ALPA members traced their discontent to his handling of the SOS. Some pilots disliked O'Donnell because they opposed the SOS concept. Others denounced him for not carrying it through to completion. The SOS idea had a troubling history. The concept fractured ALPA's internal unity three times, in 1972, 1981, and later during the Eastern Strike of 1989. While Operation USA was much better than the skyjacking SOS of 1972, rank and file ALPA members probably would not have stuck with it any better. When Eastern's pilots, desperately at war with Frank Lorenzo during the 1989 strike, appealed to Hank Duffy for a nationwide SOS, he would make the same judgment as O'Donnell that the basic concept did not work. In a sense, The SOS is ALPA's nuclear weapon. Before any ALPA president dares launch it, they must be certain that the issue is important enough that the vast majority of pilots on every airline will not only risk the loss of their careers, but also be willing to go to jail. Since 1980, American labor law has been transformed. The anti-labor proclivities of judges appointed by Ronald Reagan and George Bush would almost certainly land ALPA leaders in jail. By the early 1990s, these judges constituted over 80% of the federal bench. An SOS, even a local one, would almost certainly bring an injunctive crackdown. A nationwide SOS would almost certainly entail prison time for ALPA's leaders. The 1981 SOS situation left O'Donnell vulnerable his opponents were determined that the 1982 Board of Directors meeting would not see a repeat of the 1978 meeting. In 1978, O'Donnell's opponents failed to unite on a candidate, and he won a surprisingly easy re-election. Many ALPA insiders expected the 1978 election to be a repeat of the extremely close 1974 election. O'Donnell still smarting from the failed 1972 SOS crisis, had won the election by an eyelash. If anybody had the clout to unseat O'Donnell, it would have been Jerry Pride. But Pride felt O'Donnell had done a good job and would not challenge him. This loyalty would later land Pride a slot on O'Donnell's ticket as first vice president. For J.J. O'Donnell... The 1978 board meeting was the high-water mark of his political control of ALPA. But the tumultuous events of the post-1978 period would offer the anti-O'Donnell forces new opportunities. Next time, they vowed, it would be a different story. In 1982, they would be organized and ready. Next time on Flying the Line... The creation of the Executive Vice President position to give smaller carriers a larger voice and the issue of crew complement. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter Three, Part Two of Flying Line Two by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production Copyright ALPA 2022. All rights reserved.